Hello, everyone. This is not an official Writer's Drinking Coffee episode. This is an intervention! <laughs> oh, sorry. Interregnum? Interregnum. Interregnum. This is an official um, story of Chaz telling us why we need to tell stories, especially during the holidays, and ghost, ghost stories, stories in particular. Okay, so what happened was that I was in a pub. Most of my stories start with me in a pub. A very good um, but place I was in a pub. Exactly. I was in a pub with my friend Sean O'Brien, the poet. Um, and it was my strategy. I'm Sean, for those who don't know him, he is seriously the leading British poet of his generation. He is phenomenally good and hugely well rewarded. You know, he has prizes coming out of the kazoo. Um, and um, we were in the pub, as we used to do, and we were drinking, as we did, um, and he said, what we should do, and I, I, I had had this campaign for a while where I wanted to bring him over to the dark side. I wanted him to write fiction, prose. And he said, what we should do, Chaz? He said, we should write ghost stories for Christmas. And I'm pretty sure that what he meant was the M.R. James model. Because M.R. James, who is, you know, the, the preeminent writer of British ghost stories, used to write a story in his Cambridge college rooms and then summon a dozen of his closest friends around Christmas and serve them port and biscuits and read the story to them. And I think this is what Sean meant. Uh, but he said it to me and we were in the bodega, which is just around the corner from the Lytton Phil, which is this beautiful Regency private library in Newcastle. And the librarian there was a friend of mine. So I went traipsing around to the Lytton Phil and said, Kay, Kay, how's about me and Sean and somebody else to pad out the evening? Because two won't be enough, but three would be lovely. Reading ghost stories for Christmas. And she said, lovely, let's do it. Um, and then I went bouncing out of the Lytton Phil and started walking home up the hill, really feeling really pleased with myself because I'd just arranged a gig, which is not a thing I do. And coming down the hill, I met a couple of friends of mine. And she was someone who made artistic projects happen. She calls herself a curator, but she brings artists and funding and venues together. Mm -hmm. And he, among many other things, was a very small press publisher to wit at that point i think he published one book but it was beautiful and and i bounced at them i said i just organized a gig ghost stories me sean somebody else in the little phil at christmas and he said oh now ghost stories i might be interested in publishing those as a little chat book and she said what we need is arts council funding and so i turned around and we went back to the pub and we had a business meeting and as a result, Phantoms of the Phil started in, I can't remember, the year 2000 and not very many, and has been going strong ever since. I mean, I left Newcastle seven and a half years ago, and it's still running without me. Twice a year, because we, before I left, we were doing Christmas and Midsummer ghost stories. Um, the first three were published in these beautiful, slim, hardback volumes, um, the first, I think it was only the first one, had a live recording CD tucked in the back as well. 
and it was it was just joyful. I don't know how far back the tradition of ghost stories of Christmas actually goes. M.R. James is the classic model, but certainly Dickens wrote ghost stories. And I mean, people will tell you that A Christmas Carol is the original Christmas ghost story and and started that whole movement. And I don't know if that's true. I, my suspicion is that people have been telling each other ghost stories at Christmas much, much longer than that because it seems such an obvious firelight, cold, The dark. little match girl. Right. That's if you will think of it. Is looking in the window at the feasting yes. and all the glorious things of the warm yes. holidays of the Christmas yes. season. Yes. So, of course, it's a ghost story. Right. Absolutely. Yeah. So, according to the Smithsonian Magazine, it does go back earlier. I thought it would. And uh, it, it's attached to the Yule religion yes. and the darkness of the year. But without stealing their article, they claim that Dickens revived it and then came the great renaissance. of That, the, that seems highly likely. I mean, Dickens was an incredibly powerful figure in, in literature and in culture mm-hmm. through his age. Um, and yes, I can completely believe that. Well, we even sing about it, and I think everybody, it's not that they've been whammed <laughs> as much as everybody has heard Andy Williams, it's the most wonderful time of the year. There'll be parties for hosting marshmallows for toasting and caroling out in the snow. There'll be scary ghost stories and tales of the glories of Christmases long, long, long ago. Long, long ago. Yep. There you go. There yep. you go. Christmas stories, Christmas ghost stories. It just it, it just works. We did Phantoms of the Phil before Christmas for the first few years. And, and the, fir- the first year, we announced it and said, you know, you do have to book. And the evening was booked out in days. And there were so many protests that we did a second. And there were so many protests that we did a third. And then we moved it around a bit. I mean, it became it became a thing. I had established a tradition, and I love that. Mm. Um, and it became a thing. And we moved it around. We moved it closer to Christmas. We moved it past Christmas. And we settled eventually, I think, on Twelfth Night, um, because people have got all the Christmas holiday events mostly over by then. But the, the evenings are still black dark. And it's, it's just, it's, 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 it's ideal. Well, without further ado then, let me bring you Riders Drinking Coffee and Telling Ghost Stories. Woohoo! I've forgotten my title. I'm still recording. I know. Um, the Greenway Waits for You by Chaz Brenchley. No one walks the Greenway anymore. Time was, you could have gone the length and breadth of England without ever leaving the Greenway. Common paths and ancient tracks met and meandered and wandered away, knotting all the land together without let or hindrance, untroubled by any law of man. You'd have found nothing and no one set against you, however far you chose to go. No locked gates, no barriers of hedge or wicker, brick or stone, no dug ditch or raised barn wall. Only the old road winding ahead, leading you through woodland and forest, high over moor and mountain, down into river valleys where there would always be a ford and never a fee for crossing. Time was. It is no longer so. Now field paths are lost to plough and tarmac. Now valleyways are drowned in reservoirs, crushed under city roads, gone from sight and mind and memory. Now all that's left is this, and countless others just like this. Shreds, fragments, glimpses. Here, now, 
People think the Greenway is just that path behind the church. You know, the one that runs past the graveyard and down into the wood. Truthfully, even here, even now, there's more to it than that. It starts as an alley off the high street, squeezed between the butcher and the ironmonger. High, blank brick walls both sides, and not a trace of green about it, barely a touch of sun. The name may be forgotten except on parish maps, but the truth of it remains. People know. It's still the Greenway, and no one walks it anymore. Behind that one of shops, there's a post-war housing estate, built by the council, sold by the Tories, a private colony of pebble-dashed, semi-detached homes, interwoven with roadways and drives and footpaths. One of those cuts cleanly through the lot. It wasn't meant to. Check the original plans and that path isn't there. Perhaps some local busybody tackled the developer about a long-established right-of-way. Perhaps the council surveyor had opinions, a sense of history, something. Whatever happened, that path is the result. That's the greenway, and even the kids on their bikes avoid it. Then you come, you would come, that is, if ever you came this way, to the church and the graveyard, and here's where the greenway declares itself more boldly, with Victorian cast-iron railings either side, and arching lamp brackets overhead, although, although there's been no light here for a long time now. You should see it in the snow, it's like a Christmas card. The graves and the lich gate, that's always locked these days, even bodies no longer come this way and the gravel path winding ahead, reaching down to the fringes of the wood. Time was it ran clear through the wood, and came to an abrupt end at the canal cut, like many another way that used to cross the valley before the navvies came. But any woodland path will disappear in time if no one uses it. An archaeologist could track it, maybe, where it used to run, under the leaf litter and de debris, yeah, under the leaf litter and debris, the fallen branches, the tangles of new growth. Or you. You could find it, if you dared. Did people make it, then? Is the Greenway the work of humankind? People want to think so, certainly. The early folk, they say, before the Romans came with their straight roads, straight words, straight minds, when people followed shamans before warriors, dream speakers who forged their own ways through the daylight world and left their trails for the ages. That's how the Greenway came down to us, they say. Theirs are the feet the land remembers. What no one says is this, and this is true, that before and long before any human foot could mark this land, others came and went, by daylight and starlight, at the full and the dark of the moon, unimpeded, undelayed, and still could, still would, if the roads still lay open, if the Greenway had been left whole as you found it, you know it isn't grave ghosts waiting for you here, should you ever come. You know who we are, you who know too much. A churchyard is no place for us. Creatures of the track are we, trapped by your builders and engineers, your city planners and your architects, victims of a heedless desolation. When you broke our paths, you broke our lives. What are we now but memories stitched with fury, fed on an everlasting loss? One thing more we are, we're here, waiting. The Gingerbread Elf by Jeannie Warner Death looked around at the room's bloody carnage. There was more than one body, 
but only one lost spirit remained behind for him to collect. He found the ghost hiding in a closet and gathered it in to tuck the spirit into his coat pocket. It was heavy for being small. Normally children's ghosts were solid to the eye and light in heft due to a lack of life experiences and opportunity for wickedness. But this child was different, the soul edgy with the light fading in spots but heavy in his hands. With time, it might have healed, or, as happens on some sad occasions, it might have continued to go wrong, growing heavier and darker. Death found a penciled note at the bedside table. Dear Santa, it's hard to be good. I've been trying, but I still make my brother cry. I don't understand what good is. I know we can't have a pet because of me, but I'd really like a stuffed kitten for Christmas. I can love and teach how to be good so I can learn it too until I can have a real one again. Milo. Death finished reading the letter and looked at the ghost huddled in his coat pocket. I see now. I know just what to do with you. The journey to the north was quick, like a whisper of wind lost in the arctic breeze blowing ice needles into unprotected skin. The destination was a house on a ranch with multiple workshops and a large barn. Death knocked upon the door, which was answered by an older woman with bright red cheeks and kind eyes. Oh, oh my, what an honour to have you visit. And on such a cold, blustery night. Oh, do come in. I don't feel the storm. Well, yes or no, it's got to bother the ones you carry. Can I fetch you a cocoa? That would be kind. Death watched as she puttered about the kitchen. I apologise for not coming to visit socially. But it has been a busy season. Oh, yes, I know. It seems all your seasons are busy these days. That is true. But it is your busy season right now. I have come to offer you another helper. Mrs. Claus looked up from the kettle, alert. Oh, have you now? We'll need the gingerbread, then. Death nodded and the woman wiped her hands in her apron and set to work. Perhaps an hour and two cups of cocoa later, she pulled a large gingerbread man on a baking sheet from the oven and set it before Death. With great care, Death pulled the tiny ghost out of his cloak. It clung to the folds, whimpering slightly, but he soothed it with his voice and a stroke of his fingertips. There now. Easy. She's made you a sweeter home than your last crust. Gently, he pulled the spirit loose and pressed it into the gingerbread, which started into motion under his hands. It lifted itself off the pan and death stepped back. He is all yours. The old woman leaned forward and kissed the ginger head. Immediately, it plumped out into something rounder, gaining colour and substance and dimension, until a small, naked boy creature stood on the table and blinked about the kitchen in confusion. Where am I? The newborn asked the question of death, as the woman bustled off to find some suitably sized clothing. 
you're at the North Pole, lad. I'm not a little boy anymore, am I? You're a little boy elf now, and you have an important job to do. You are going to make stuffed animals for Santa to deliver. A smile broke onto the elf's face like the dawn over a snowfield. Truly? Death nodded. Making things for people will teach you how to be kind. And the other elves here will teach you how to live in a community without hurting anyone. I, I would like that. Then no one will cry. No one ever cries here. Death nodded respectfully to Mrs. Claus, who returned with a child-sized Christmas holiday suit in bright red and green. Madam, thank you. Mrs. Claus smiled. We are here when you need us. Come for the cocoa next time. I'd like that. Death turned to go. He paused at the door to nod a farewell toward the new elf, then stepped outside and vanished into the howling blizzard beyond. You have been listening to Riders Drinking Coffee, a labor of love and enthusiasm put together by the hosts. As we fly merrily through the midwinter holidays, I want to remind you all to try to think kindly about everybody you meet for the next few weeks. We are so nearly rid of 2020, and that deserves celebration, even if we cannot be with our loved ones in person. Our main web support magic is brought to you by Deirdre Schween, and our sound engineer and backup web spider is David Welsh. Our intro music is from Michael Engberg's Songs for Women I Don't See Anymore. You can find it, along with all of his other amazing albums, on Amazon. They make great Christmas presents. Our podcast sponsor is Eternally Jackal Designs, making you all cool WDC swag to wear and impress your friends. And here's a shout out to the Bean Scene in Sunnyvale, California, as well as the Hamakua Chocolate Farm near Hilo on the Big Island of Hawaii. Dan and Brandt are amazing, and their farm is my new happy place. You guys should all go book a visit. And hey, thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.